good morning, Westside. Thank you for being here and online. My name is Caleb Klinger. I have the privilege of working with our teens in our student ministry here at Westside. And I get this incredible opportunity to come and talk uh, during this series of one as we are going through Mark. But because I have the microphone and the stage, I am going to take a couple minutes and talk about student ministry. Ha! Gotcha. You have to listen to me. No. <laughs> we have some incredible things that are happening in our student ministry, some changes that are happening. And uh, on the screen, you can see they're going to be starting April 11th. April 11th, that Sunday, we are actually going to be kicking off a new service for our middle school students at 9.30. So if you are a middle schooler and you are in this service right now, on April 11th, we will be having a service specifically geared towards you for you in the loft. And what this looks like and what this means is that our Wednesday night service, which will be at, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., will be for high schoolers only. And so we are taking this step and we are moving in this direction because we believe that we can create an intentional and specific environment for our teens that is geared towards them, where they can be surrounded by peers, but they can also be influenced by people who are, are there and living a, an expression of living on mission with Jesus and for Jesus to influence the teenagers. And so as, as the director here, I, I am coming to you and I am asking you to take a next step and be an influence in the lives of teenagers. We need adults who are willing to invest time and energy into teenagers to help them discover their identity in Jesus and equip them to reach their God-given potential. Because the reality of the culture that we are in, the reality of society, is that society and the world are pressuring our teenagers to root their identity in things that are not in Jesus, that are not Jesus. Things that are temporary, things that are, you know, geared towards their sexual orientation, their gender identity, whether their social status. Like there's so many pressures on our teens to put and root their identity in things that are temporary that are not Jesus. And so it's vitally important that we are, are influencers for teenagers to discover who they are in Jesus so that they can grow in their faith and the knowledge of who they are because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm encouraging you to, to take that next step. Join us as we are going to be hanging out with teenagers at 9.30 on Sundays, but also Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. It's an incredible opportunity. And, and I wouldn't be standing here right now. I wouldn't be where I am right now without the influence of a youth pastor in my life from eighth grade into high school. Because he poured into me, invested time and energy into me. He, he, he saw a leader in me, and he saw my, my ability and, and, and my talents, and, and he encouraged me to take those next steps in my relationship with Jesus. And so I understand the importance of investing into our teens. And I hope that you see the importance too. If you have any questions, you can go to our website, westsidelovemirth.com, or you can talk to me after the service, or you can fill out a Connect card in the seat back pocket in front of you. Uh, for those online, I would encourage you to go to our website and you can engage in uh, you know, just building relationships with teens 
with me on Sunday morning starting April 11th or on Wednesday nights. So this change will take place on April 11th. There are actually invite cards on the welcome table in the back uh, that have the new times on them. And just know that it starts April 11th, so just a couple weeks from now. So uh, it is my privilege to be here and to talk to you. And, and, and we're in the sixth week of, of this series one where we're going through the, the gospel of Mark. And it's been an incredible experience uh, to, to just see this ministry of Jesus and, and how Jesus has, has influenced his disciples and, and all these stories that Mark has captured. And, and Mark has, has written these down to, to help us come to an understanding and a realization of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And so as we're going through this series, our series big idea is this, believing that Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God and King of all, is the beginning of new life in him. It's the beginning of new life in him. And there are several distinctions, I mean, a myriad of distinctions between the old life that we lived before we were following Jesus and the new life that is available in him as we are growing in the knowledge and of, of who he is and what he has done for us and as we are following him. And, and Mark is writing this gospel so that you can know some of those distinctions, but you can also know that, like, the impact that Jesus has had and, and what Jesus has done for you. And so as we see this new life and, and the new life that we're living as we follow Jesus, we, we know that there are, there are incredible differences between the old life that we were once living and the new life as we follow him. But before we look at today's teaching in Mark, there's, there's a couple relevant truths that, that I want to look at. And the first is this. Humanity loves to keep score. Humanity loves to keep score. Right? We, we're in the middle of March Madness now. How many of you filled out a bracket? Right? If you filled out a bracket, that's a way of keeping score. How many of your brackets are busted because of Abilene Christian and Oral Roberts? Right? But humanity as, as, a, as a whole, we love to keep score. In fact, I have a very vivid memory when I was a 6th uh, or 7th grader. My best friend's grandpa, Granddad Frazier, would take us to Royals games. And every time we would go to a Royals game, he would get one of the official scorecards. And he was meticulous about this. He would capture every single pitch, every single hit, every single strikeout, every single field, like everything. At the end of the game, his scorecard was pristine. And in fact, he would like keep notes on the side too. He just loved that aspect of going to the baseball games, right? And, but it goes beyond sports, right? Some of you are like, well, I don't, I don't really follow sports. It goes beyond sports because we keep score socially, Right? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of house are you living in? What kind of career are you doing? Like we rate ourselves and others based on, on how they look, how fit you are. Right? We keep score whether it's, it's explicit or just something that we do internally. We keep score on, on you know, how we see other people and how we view other people. Maybe it's on uh, how, how they act, what their personality is. Maybe it's on their intelligence. Could be on what they've done to you. Maybe that's the way you keep score. You keep that record of all the wrongs that people have 
done to you. Because we love to keep score. In some ways, it's a natural, uh, you know, biological response, a, so, a social response, right? Because the way that we can keep score, it allows us to fit in, right? When we know how we need to keep score, it allows us to be a member of whatever, whatever group we're trying to be a part of. And we tend to keep score according to that group. So humanity loves to keep score. And too often, though, we adopt the scorecard that the world has, right? Because the scorecard the world has is all the social status, economic status, right? Intelligence, all these things. These are what the world values. These are the stats that the world values. But there's a huge flaw in the way the world keeps score. And the flaw is this, is that I always have more grace on myself than I have on others. Right? That's often the case that, that I will have way more grace on myself than I have on others. And, and we judge and rate others much more harshly than we judge or rate ourselves. Right? It, just watch American Idol. Right? You've seen those people that come up and, and, they, and they sing and they think they're the greatest singer in the world. Right? Because they don't have that critical eye on themselves. You can just watch, scroll through your Facebook feed. How about this? Watch a political debate. <laughs> right? We always judge and rate and score others more harshly than we do ourselves. In fact, it crosses into pure hypocrisy sometimes. We'll do the same thing that someone else does, but we will hold it against them and we'll, we'll judge them harshly for it. But the gospel, the good news is that there is a better way. And we find that Jesus is the way because of this truth. Jesus' standard of grace is the way to keep score. See, Jesus flipped the script on culture. He lived in a time and, and a, a, a historical context where he was countercultural to what people believed, how you should view others and how you should treat other people he flipped the script on the the things that he saw that were valuable so i have two chapters today they they allowed me to preach using two chapters so got i had to dig in and get as much as i could from these two chapters but as i looked at these two chapters i pulled out a couple things that i think were our stats if you will, that are valuable to Jesus and the way that Jesus keeps score and Jesus' scorecard. And so we're going to look through some of these things. Now, you have to understand this is not a comprehensive list. This is not everything. Again, it's just two chapters in Mark. Two chapters. Yeah, so this is his way of viewing the world and treating others according to Mark 9 and 10. This is Jesus' scorecard. You can go with me, uh, go through it with me right here. Lastness, collaborator, Salty, humble, generous, least oriented. So we're going to be picking up in Mark verses or chapters nine and ten. We're going to look at a couple stories where we're pulling these out of and, and talk a little bit about the scorecard that comes out of these experiences that Jesus has with people and his disciples. So the first thing that that Jesus is calling us to do and, and calling me and you to be different in is lastness. A person with lastness 
puts others first by serving them. We're going to pick up in chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Now, the first thing that sticks out to me as a parent is that the disciples had the exact same reaction that my kids do when I ask them and I catch them in something, (laughs) right? He's like, hey, what were you guys talking about? And they're like, me, right? They kept silent because they knew they had been caught. And so Jesus flips the script again. He says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. See, Jesus esteemed this willingness to serve others. You might say it was a a weighted stat on his scorecard, right? A couple of you, uh, you know, sports stat guys were just like, oh, yeah, I get that. Weighted stat, yeah. Right? So he's saying you want to be great. You want to be first of all. You have to have a willingness to put yourself last. It's so counterintuitive. It doesn't make the most sense. You want to be great? You want to be first? Serve everybody. And see, he, he's teaching them to, to, to take the way that the world keeps score, and, and he's entering into this new paradigm. He's saying there's a new way of living. Old life, new life. There's a new way. And this is how you are going to be great in this new way of living. You want to be first? You want to be great? then you have to have this lastness character trait. You have to be willing to serve others and use your influence for their benefit. Because our culture doesn't say that. They say, hey, if you're great, then other people are going to serve you. If you're great, you're going to be an influencer. You're going to have thousands of followers. They're going to follow you. They're going to do everything you do. You lead the way. And Jesus says, no, you want to be great in my kingdom? You're going to be last, and you're going to be a servant of all. You put others first. You use your influence to elevate other people. The second thing is a collaborator. And a collaborator is willing to overlook differences to work together towards a common goal. In verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, Jesus values collaboration over competition. Jesus values collaboration over competition. There is unity in the name of Jesus and not division. And this is why as a church, as Westside leadership, we are striving to collaborate with people and find the people in our communities that are on mission for Jesus and join with them. This is why we're doing the food drive on Easter is so that we can join with our local food banks who are providing food to the hungry which is something that is aligned with Jesus' mission, and we collaborate with them because we understand that we are part of something that is bigger than ourselves. 
We're not competing with any churches that are following Jesus. We are brothers and sisters in one body with people who are following Jesus. And they may have a different tradition. They may have a different background, a different way of expressing things. But if they are on mission in our community for Jesus, then we are going to join with them. And we are going to help them and encourage them in any way we can because if they're not against us, they're for us. Right? We understand that Jesus values collaboration, that, that on his scorecard, collaboration is better than competition. And so, so seek out the people in your, in your neighborhood, in your community, at your, at your work that are on mission for Jesus and join with them, collaborate with them, be together with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't compete Next thing is a salty person. And a salty person enhances those around them and brings flavor to others' lives. Now, if you are younger and you hear this and you think a salty person is someone that is always whining and complaining, I am going to give you a new definition for what salty means. And I get excited when it comes to salt. I love to cook. You can, you can ask my wife. I really enjoy cooking. And the, the reason I enjoy cooking is I like bringing things together that, that, that come into a cohesive dish. And, and this is where salt is so incredible, because salt is magic, right? Salt is magic. You don't believe me? Take a freshly fried French fry just out of the fryer. It's crispy, and it's light, lightly salted. You can see the specks of salt on it gleaming, catching the light. And you know what that tastes like, right? It's so good. And then you take a French fry that's fresh out of the fryer that has no salt on it, and you taste the dirty, earthy, like bland flavor that that potato really is. You see, what salt does, salt enhances flavors. Salt elevates flavors in our mouth, in our palate, and it, and it brings everything that's good in that food, and it elevates it to the top. But salt also does something that is incredible in cooking. Salt brings two competing flavors and brings them together. In verse 50, this is what Jesus said. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, be salty. Because salt brings two things that are competing with each other and brings it together in harmony. Salt elevates flavors to the top. Salt brings all the good things about that, that food and it and it brings it to the forefront. And so we need to be salty people in our relationships. We need to be the, the people of harmony, the people of peace, the intermediaries between two opposing viewpoints. That's what the church should be. The church needs to be the salt of the world, the salt of the earth, so that we can bring people together, so that we can be, be seen elevating people and elevating other people and, and bringing out their, their talents and their abilities for the glory of Jesus. Be salty. Bring that harmony. Bring peace. The next thing is humility. A humble person has a realistic understanding of who they are in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. A humble person has a realistic understanding 
of who they are. In Mark 10, verses 14, Jesus said, uh, the story of Jesus, there's some parents that are trying to bring their children to Jesus. And the disciples, they don't quite understand uh, like everything about Jesus. And so they think, well, Jesus is really important. He doesn't have time for these kids. And so the disciples are trying to prevent the, the kids from coming to Jesus. And, and this is where we pick up verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You see, humility, like a child coming to the king, coming before Jesus, is an understanding. Humility isn't passivity. I think too many times we, we, we have this misconception about what humility is. It's not passivity. Humility is an active understanding of who we are in light of what Jesus is doing. In light of the amazing work that God is doing around us and through us, humility is understanding who we are and what small part we play in this. Jesus says in these verses that unless we are like a child, we won't enter the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children. And what do children do? They ask tons of questions because they want to understand. They want to know. They want to know where they fit in, where they belong in the world. Humility is that understanding. I think it's credited to Socrates when he said, uh, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. Right? Humility comes with understanding. Humility comes with understanding. The next thing that we find on this list is a generous person. A generous person understands everything they are and everything they have already belong to God. Everything they are and everything they have already belong to God. We pick up in verse 17. He says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, I've taught several lessons about this this section of verses and and the more i've looked into this the more the more i've come to this understanding of what the rich young ruler was going through but i also believe this about the rich young ruler if he had obeyed if he had if he had followed jesus in that obedience had had discarded his great wealth in order for the, the wealth that is following Jesus, the ultimate prize, I don't think he would be anonymous. I think we'd know his name today. 
You see, there was one thing that he was placing ahead of Jesus. By all accounts, he was a righteous person. He had followed all the commandments. But Jesus said, you lack one thing. I need to be first in your life. I need you to understand that everything you own, everything you are, it already belongs to God. And, and that obedience that, that comes from being a generous person is when, when we are called to do something that, that, that goes against maybe our best instincts. And throughout my life, I, I understand something about myself and, and honestly about America. And, and maybe this is the first time you've heard this, but you have to understand America is rich. If you were born in America, congratulations, you won the lottery. According to the world's standards, if you live in America as an American citizen, you are rich. So what is this story saying to me? What is this story saying to us? That we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we are not making prosperity, that we are not making comfort the number one thing in our life. Because Jesus' scorecard says that generous people are valued. And that when you follow him in obedience, when, when it comes to your money, when it comes to your wealth, that that is what he values. That it doesn't matter how, how much you have and how, how, you know, how much you chase after materialism. In the end, it's what are you going to do with the wealth that you have? Are you going to follow him in obedience when he asks you that hard question? What is God calling us to do with the riches that we have? The next thing on our list, and the last thing on our list today, is a least-oriented person. A least-oriented person does not turn away the broken oppressed, sick, and disheartened. In verse 48, we pick up the story as, as a blind beggar is calling out. He heard Jesus was nearby, and he's calling out. He's shouting for Jesus. In 48, it picks up. It says, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You see, least-oriented people will search out the marginalized and fringe of society and show them not only that they care, but we have a Savior and a King who deeply cares and loves for them. You see, the people that were near this beggar thought, uh, Jesus can't be bothered. Jesus is too important to be bothered by this beggar. And so they were, they were rebuking him there, saying, hey, you need to be quiet. You are disrupting his stroll. But Jesus hears it, and he stops, and he says, no, I am least oriented. 
I'm going to find the people that are oppressed. I'm going to find the people that are sick. I'm going to find the people that are broken, that are disheartened. Because I have good news for them. The good news is that I love them. That they are close to my heart. And that's what I value. I value people that find the least among them. And encourage them. And love them the way that I love. See, here's the truth of this. Is that I don't live up to Jesus' scorecard. And this is not even a comprehensive scorecard. This is just a scorecard that I took from the two chapters that they gave me to preach from. Right? If we look at the entire life of Jesus, we could find many different things where Jesus shows what he values. We understand that we don't live up to it. So this is the challenge in this. That if these are the things that Jesus values, and these are the things that Jesus keeps score on, what is he calling you into today? What is your next step to take to become a person who is living a life that reflects the life of Jesus? Because that's our teaching big idea today is that my life should reflect Jesus' life because Jesus' scorecard is the only one that ultimately matters. And too often we get caught up trying to check all the boxes on the world scorecard. We get so distracted by, by trying to live up to a scorecard that doesn't even matter at the end of the day. Because that's the old life. Called into this new life as followers of Jesus, we're called into this new life that should reflect Jesus' life. That's why our mission is loving Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and sharing Jesus because Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is the mirror to which we should hold our life. And when each of us reflect Jesus' life, what kind of impact? we have can you imagine if the church in America as, as one huge church just started living a life that reflected Jesus' life what the impact would be in our world what's the impact that it would have in your life and the people that you have in your life, your family, your friends, the people that you work with, the people you go to school with, the people who maybe come into your place of work that you have just a brief interaction with. Are people seeing that reflection of Jesus' life in the way that you're living? You see, in Mark 8, Jesus encapsulates this all in one brutal teaching. Verse 34, he says, And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's so counterintuitive. It doesn't make 
doesn't make the, the biological, the social sense. The old life is, is how do I save my life? The old way of living is I need to save my life. But Jesus says if, you, if you're striving for that, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you end up saving it. Ultimately, Jesus will judge us based on his scorecard. And so he's calling us, and it's a hard calling to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. But this is a response because we understand what Jesus has done for us. The disciples didn't understand at this point. When Jesus told them about this, they didn't understand. In fact, if, as you read in the, in the book of Mark where Jesus explicitly talks about his death and his resurrection, it says the disciples didn't quite understand what he was talking about. But I guarantee you they got it. Just like you and I understand, we know what Jesus has done. We know what he's done for us. So this is our response. We pick up our cross. We follow Jesus. Because we have everything to gain from it. Everything. This is my challenge to you, church. Live a life that reflects Jesus' life. Put value into the things that Jesus values. Treat others the way that Jesus would treat them. And watch how your influence will bring about Jesus' mission everywhere you go. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Help us to live in response to that. Help us to, to constantly be living in response to the amazing sacrifice that, that you have given us on the cross, but, but also the, the incredible resurrection from the grave that you live in today. Help us understand that everything that we do comes from the knowledge of who you are and what you have done for us. into this new life and this new way of living. Help us to, to adopt the scorecard and to, to be constantly be challenged in the areas that we need to be challenged. To become more like you, Jesus. We love you. We're so thankful for everything that Thank you, Westside. We have prayer partners that are available up at the front at the tables on the side. If you need prayer for anything, I encourage you to go to one of the prayer partners. We'll see you again next week. Have a good week.